explain deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Hello, everybody, and I'm so glad to be back with you today. We've got another really interesting case for you. As usual, I am with my two besties, Ian Kirk and Chris Ward. Over to you, Chris. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Ward. I was a police officer for 31 years. I retired about 18 months ago. Um, I worked for one of the largest non-metropolitan police forces in the country, and for uh, eight years I was head of the murder unit, so dealing with homicide, uh, serial sex offenders, some of the most serious crimes that you can investigate. Ooh, always makes me run cold, that. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Ian. <laughs> Thanks, Debbie. Well, let, let me just sort of bring it down a notch or two. Or I've, I've known Chris since he was an acting sergeant and he came into uh, Windsor custody one, like, like, like Captain Flashard. So, so, I, so I do remember this sort of young guy with lots of hair and uh, lots of front. I'm proud of what he's achieved, but I've got a, uh, a lot of other stories about him, but perhaps for another podcast in the future. But um... ah, yeah. That would make a great Christmas episode, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, as long as we have a few uh, port and lemons before we start. We should have our own little mini Christmas party podcast, shouldn't we? Where we each, you know, can have our favourite tipple and we just stick the record button on. <laughs> I, I'm up for that. Right. Guys, thanks. <laughs> it's Ian Kirk here again. And uh, again, my little preamble, I'm, I'm sure that most of you who've listened in previously um, will remember that uh, a little bit about me, uh, a postgraduate criminologist, journalist and feature writer, holder of a qualifying law degree. And uh, yeah, I was a, a senior police officer as well, but not at the same level as my mate, Chris. We're going to keep these situations alive, these mysterious deaths, because, you know, a memory jog by our analysis may lead to a vital breakthrough. And, and if this triggers anything in, uh, you know, listeners, then I'd urge you to contact Crime Stoppers. Otherwise, listen and pick up the new learning. Uh, certainly, Chris will look at the policing side, which, you know, it still fascinates me and, and still fascinates people. That's why they watch it on the television. And, um, you know, policing is all about, you know, policing perhaps on occasions the darker sides of human behaviour. And at the end of this particular podcast, uh, Debbie and I, We'll announce our verdicts. We'll frame the, the case a little bit later on. And just as a reminder, uh, Chris will not uh, be pronouncing a verdict because uh, he's from the police point of view. And uh, we'll leave him to present the facts and leave the adjudication to Debbie and I. But in the previous podcast, uh, Debbie, we investigated the quite incredible uh, set of circumstances, which you summed up quite elegantly as the, as the Wilmslow murders. Having reflected on that, uh, What's your conclusion? There's a serial killer on the loose. No question. There's a serial killer on the loose, and he's been on the loose since 1996. Definitely. And I think he's killed around half a dozen people. Well, no, half a dozen couples, I should say. Definitely. For sure. Debbie, on this occasion, surprise, surprise, I agree with you. From Good. a criminologist's point of view, really, I've got the easy job that I just overlay the balance of probabilities. I, I don't have to prove beyond all reasonable doubt, as the police do. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. On the balance of probabilities, I think it's more likely than not this was a serial killer. Therefore, really, I think that there is there's enough around these cases to 
have them reopened, I think, and, you know, re-examined, investigated again, etc. I mean, there's more technology around now, isn't there? You know, it's maybe look at DNA that maybe wasn't around then. I don't know, but they need looking into again. Blimey, we, we've agreed. We have agreed. For today's case, though, what do I have for you? <laughs> well, hmm, I thought that we would look at the case of Jill Dando's death. Now, pretty much most of the people, I think, if not all of the people listening to this, will know about Jill Dando's death or her murder. Um, so I'm not going to go right into the nitty gritty of what happened, et cetera, et cetera, because I do think that, you know, yeah, everybody, everybody kind of knows. I mean, she was only 37 years old. She was killed by a single bullet to the head. It was half 11 in the morning. And this was the 26th of April. 1999. We do know that a postman that was delivering mail at around three minutes past 10 that morning noticed that he was being watched by a dark-haired man in a suit. And a blue Range Rover was seen by a traffic warden. There was some interaction with the traffic warden and the blue Range Rover, but that Range Rover was seen speeding away apparently not too long after Jill was killed. And the dark-haired man was seen by several people. The case, though, still remains unsolved. Lots of people have looked at it, and there's been a few documentaries on the TV, and there are a few theories knocking around out there. Question is, which one is right, and will it ever be solved? And what actually happened that day? What do you think, Ian? I think that one of the most high-profile murder cases in, in recent history, and I think touched many people because of the emotional attachment we had to, to Jill, that, you know, Jill was someone that appeared in our rooms regularly on the TV. She was a beautiful human being, and I think it was a very, very powerful and awful situation that um, if you weren't touched by that death, then I think there's something up with you. Um, potentially killed with a, a nine millimeter semi-automatic pistol and Barry George and we'll look at uh, that background of, of, of that guy in a moment but um, as many of listeners will be aware uh, was wrongly convicted of her murder and spent seven years uh, before he was acquitted but what I'd, I'd like to do is is pass to Chris and from a police officer point of view from a human being point of view what effect did it have on you, Chris, when you learnt of this high-profile murder? Well, I actually remember I was when it happened. And, um, yeah, I was shocked because, as you say, this is somebody that you know, everybody knows but probably doesn't know, of course, because we don't, we never really knew her. But what we knew is that she was on our TV. She was on the holiday programme. She also, and quite significantly, of course, was a presenter on Crime Watch for, for a number of years as well. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. In terms of a high-profile murder in particular, what training is given to a senior investigating officer to perhaps mitigate this? Well, there's two things, I think. One would have been present um, going back all those years, and that was this open mindset, which is so important in investigating, especially these really serious crimes, is having a, a really open mindset and looking at what are the possibilities of what could have happened to the victim. But I think the other one, which is more recent, is where there's, there's, a, there's a tier of management structure now within investigation. So particularly for a situation that's this high profile, I mean, I've had high profile cases, but not this high profile, where the management of the media, for example, 
will be taken away from the senior investigating officer. Somebody else does that. So they effectively would front up the media. And I know in this case they didn't. The senior investigating officer um, was out talking to the media as well. So that just increases the pressure on you because you're trying to work through possibilities of what could have happened and all the um, all the, the necessary things you need to do around that investigation. But you're also taken away from that by, by dealing with the media. And the media are really, really useful in these cases, but, but they need to be managed by somebody else. Just building on that, for, for my recollections, it, it was a DCI, I think, that was sort of uh, front of shot um, on this one. Are, are you saying that since that murder, there have been changes in terms of managing high-profile cases such as this? Yeah, so the, the rank of the investigating officer would probably be the same because it's about their experience. What has changed is, um, so I had a very high-profile murder case, um, which was on national news, and my boss at the time, he did all the media releases. He he went out there and did all the press conferences and things, which I've done for other senior investigating officers. And as I say, that takes away that day-to-day pressure so you can focus on what you need to focus on, which is um, all of those lines of inquiry to uh, establish why the person's been killed and, of course, um, who's done it. Are you allowed to tell us what, what that case was, what the high-profile case was? That uh... yeah, it was a case of Jaden Parkinson, who was a, a 17-year-old girl who went missing in Oxfordshire and um, was subsequently found buried in a graveyard, in a, an existing grave. Um, and it was over Christmas, Christmas 2013. And that, you know, that was on national news. So I was in my office running that investigation. I was, um, I was watching it play out on Sky TV, um, as we were investigating it, my boss did all of that, took away all of the media pressure. So that, that helps the investigating officer focus on what they need to focus on. I mean, th- that immediately sounds to me like quite a healthy r- relationship. But surely in that case and the case of Jill Dando, there must be internal dynamics where other senior officers outside of the hierarchy of the criminal investigation department are putting immense pressure on you to get a result. Well, that's again managed through that uh, that management structure. So the person who fronts up the press, they will also deal with other, you know, chief officers who want to know what's happening, partner agencies, local authorities, all those people that have got a vested interest. They manage all of that, and that that basically puts you in a bubble that you need to be in, and that bubble is getting on with the job that you need to get on with. Okay. Before I hand over to to Debbie, um, if we go back to to Barry George. Um, a convenient patsy. I mean, Chris, you know, there was a single particle of gunpowder found in a coat pocket owned by George. Yeah. And he was convicted on that. I mean, he just seemed such a, a bizarre choice and a convenient choice. What are your views, your professional views on, you know, Barry George as a, as a suspect? I, I do struggle with this one. I think, you know, without talking about him, because I don't, I don't know enough about him, but I think one of the dangers in, in murder investigations is, especially when they're presented in court, is you can get a lot of what we call circumstantial evidence um, in that case. So, you know, in a burglary or, you know, which is serious, but a, a much less serious crime, you, know, you wouldn't get a lot of circumstantial evidence. Oh, I saw this guy, it looked like him. I think he was following her I think this had happened that just wouldn't be allowed into the equation and I think the the, the difficulty with murder cases is sometimes that is allowed in and then when you add that to other like there's a forensic issue here now of course it depends how that was presented because 
if it's presented as a fait accompli, then people will think that's absolutely got to be him. But of course, we know now that, of course, it's not a fait accompli, that, that, that one bit of evidence on its own. So, you know, it all depends how it's presented to a jury, how it's summed up by the judge. Um, but as I say, that's, that's one of the, you know, the, the red flags sometimes with murder cases is, you know, you've got to have good evidence coupled with maybe circumstantial evidence but you, you know it's got it's got to be a balance debbie your your immediate thoughts i think that there was going to be something exposed something that would have been a very big case and it and it would have involved quite a few people and this was a warning to say go no further and i actually really want to go to the east end of london <laughs> with it. I really want to go down to the East End of London with it. So it's definitely gangland related, in my opinion. And it, it was it served as a warning, um, unfortunately, and that this was kind of, I mean, don't really know very much about contract killers as such, but this was somebody who had a job to do. Because what I sense and feel with him in connection with Jill's death, the actual man that, that shot her, no connection whatsoever, not not an emotional connection, which is what I look for. So no emotional connection, nothing. It was simply that was his job to do. But it was on behalf of many other people, several other people. I think that perhaps is opportunity now to perhaps look at the sort of two or three main theories um, about this. And I'll come back to Chris in terms of the police investigation. But um, you talk about the gangland related uh, contract indeed the defense team for barry george proposed at the time of the the court hearing that it had been a serbian hitman that had uh, had killed her and the rationale behind that was that uh, jill had presented the bbc appeal for aid for kosovan albanian refugees and indeed a, a few days before uh, jill's death slavko Kurovija, and I do apologise uh, for my pronunciation of that, an opposition journalist was assassinated outside his home. And according to the reliable sources, pretty identical. So I think that there's a lot of persuasive support in terms of uh, your analysis. I don't think it was that. I think it was a contract killing, but I think it related to a ring of people, a paedophile ring, actually, to be more specific. And there are some very important people involved in that. And so that was a warning. And I do think that more people in positions of power knew that that was a warning. <laughs> Let me word it that way. Okay. I mean, in, in terms of domestic gangland hits, then the, the contract, as long as the, the payment is there, then, uh, you know, values go out the window. So, I think the only contrary to that analysis is that the apparently the, the low-level muzzle velocity of the suspected gun isn't usually a weapon of choice for contract killers. Yeah. And I guess you say there was no emotional attachment. I think the, 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 the last sort of potential explanation for this horrible death was uh, stalking. I understand shortly before her murder... Jill had announced her engagement to Alan Farthing, and that may have encouraged an individual, a stalker, to do this. But um, stalkers normally don't have that type of uh, weapons at their disposal. But going back to Chris now, uh, 
Debbie's got a very strong vibe for what happened in terms of it was a contract killing. Perhaps if you could tell us, Chris, from your experience then, in terms of local and, and national inquiries, how do the police go about sort of untangling domestic offenders from an international scene? Well, the, you know, you talk about theories, the police would call those hypotheses. So you would always start your investigation off, you know, what is the th- what are the three most likely possibilities here? Um, so that could be somebody that's known to her personally. Um, so that would be, um, you know, friend, family member. No, not known to her personally, but they know her obviously because of her high profile position or through her work, of course, because that crime watch angle, you can't get away from that. That's a, that's another factor in, in all of this about, you know, cases that she may have covered. So you, you will, you would pitch your investigation around all those possibilities and then start um, discounting ones through the inquiries that you do. And what has motivated something? You, know, you look at that crime scene. Well, that's in a busy residential road. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, whoever did that was confident that they weren't going to be identified because you would expect witnesses, witnesses to be around. Um, well, I believe there was a silencer on the weapon from what I remember. Um, but it's still in broad daylight in a busy part of London on somebody's doorstep. Somebody's famous as well. So they were obviously confident because the other thing about celebrities' houses is, you know, they're quite well known to people. Uh, and it's not unusual to have people just driving past saying, oh, look, that's so-and-so's house. Um, so it was somebody that was confident. I think I would agree that the nature of the um, her death is more likely to be an assassination because it's a gun to the head like that. It's very, you know, that's not a uh, shooting your kneecap and warning you about something. That is, you know, absolute intention to kill somebody without any any shadow of a doubt. So, but you, you then have to broaden your investigation to, you know, what are the possibilities? Who has she been associated with? What cases has she covered? Um, and, and then start looking at all the possibilities around those. You talk about, you know, you come up with these working sort of... Uh, um, outcomes and and you clearly identified um, offender profiling uh, which I know from my postgraduate work uh, there are many academics that uh, assist the police in offender profiling have you ever had that assistance from somebody from uh, one of the leading criminal investigation universities uh, such as Portsmouth for example have you had any support in terms of offender profiling yeah, I've had a few um, cases where we've used offender profiling. They tend to be serial sex offenders. Um, they're provided by the National Crime Agency, so they use a number of different people. But yeah, they will look at the whole of the circumstances and then talking about possibilities, who it could be, whether they'd be local, whether they're familiar with the area, all the sorts of things that, you know, where you, where you have uh, offenders that um, are, are serial offenders. Was a difficult difficulty with a, an assassination, you know, what's sometimes referred to as hitman, is of course that's their job and uh, they will go to a geographical location that suits them. You know, they're mu- they are much more difficult to um, detect, if you like, because that is their job. They're not randomly shooting people. You know, they are contracted to do that on behalf of somebody else. So it makes it much more complicated. And that's where you have to rely on, um, you know, the, especially where a firearm's used. You know, examination of the firearm, the bullet, the crime scene, you know, that becomes a lot more, even more important, I suppose, than it usually would be. Before I hand over to, to Debbie, um, you, you mentioned about the National Crime Agency. The people that 
support you in offender profiling. I take it they're not police officers then. They, they are dedicated uh, offender profilers. Yeah, so they're people that will be registered with the National Crime Agency. Obviously, they are qualified to do that, and they will select somebody um, from, from that list to assist in investigation. And uh, what are the chances, then, of uh, Debbie became, becoming registered by the National Crime Agency? I think, well, let's see, let's, have, let's see how she gets on in the next few podcasts. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. So, so you've heard a little bit more of sort of from the policing point of view, uh, Debbie. What's what, what's still your sort of thoughts uh, around this then? Yeah, my thoughts are that um, there was something there was something to be um, made public or something being investigated. This was very much a way of saying you stop in your tracks. And I'm sure I feel as though there was intelligence that was given that you know, this could well be the case. Leave the case alone. Do you get me? You understand what I mean, don't you? Yeah, and, and I'm just curious, is, is is this strong thought come as a result of you looking at the open source material, which is, is on the internet, or is it something within your gift that's telling you that, you know, this is a warning? What what what? Looking at her house, taking myself back in time to that day, what happened? What was the emotions of the killer? You know, everything is is emotion-based. And what were the emotions? Who was he? Why was he there? And I get that he connects it to <clears throat> somewhere else. And that's when I go. I go to the East End of London. Um, and But I, there are many people involved in this. I do see one particular man, actually, um, who's quite a big guy that, that I, I see that I could probably sketch his image um and then from that i just get this this whole warning that the man that killed her wasn't emotionally involved in it like he was just being paid to do what he did and he wasn't emotionally involved although i don't think he'd ever done anything quite as big as that that day you know that was a that was a really you know bad 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 thing to do to just kill Jill, just like that on a doorstep. I mean, my God, you know, that was that was horrific, wasn't it? But I do think it links back to something that was maybe being looked at at the time or investigated and that they, you know, felt that this was about to be maybe investigated further or exposed or whatever, not by Jill, by the police. It was It was kind of a, you know, don't go any further. That's what I think. Thanks, Debbie. And this warning worked? I think it did, yeah, because I really don't think that it did go any further. I think that it stopped in its tracks. Hmm. Thanks, Zoe. But, Chris, back, back to you. Um, if, if we go along the, the line of a, a contract killing, uh, because I do believe that the evidence is, is persuasive of that outcome, from your experience, have you ever dealt with an emotionally detached murderer where they've showed no emotion the the clarity of thought and the coolness that would perhaps be required to carry out that type of killing well i've never dealt with this uh, a contract killer um but of course you know some murders that you deal with um people are emotionless about it from the from the outset from what they do right through to the um investigation right through to the court case so jaden parkinson was a good example of where her partner who murdered her was convicted 
didn't show any remorse at all. In fact, he was arrested during the investigation when she was missing. And he just sat there and said nothing. And he's never shown any remorse. So, you know, that's a big contrast to, to some other types of emotionally fueled murders, I suppose. A lot of those are domestic related where um, there's highly charged emotion, which has turned into anger and then a death. Um, so not, you know, it's not just serial killers that are detached, but, um, you know, in most cases, there is some emotional attachment. And Chris, how do you process that, knowing, particularly with the the case that you dealt with, with, with Jaden's uh, uh, killing, how do you process that when someone's just not talking to you? And I, I need to understand that from a detective's point of view. You know, how do you stop reaching across the table and grabbing hold of them? Well, I think, you know, obviously the, there's a whole issue of professionalism and being calm, which you have to be, even if you feel really angry. I think that be, when somebody doesn't say anything, it can, be, of course, be quite helpful to the police because that can be used in evidence, of course, the fact they didn't say anything to the police. You know, that the, the court can take an adverse inference from that, a suspicion. Why would you not talk to the police? But it does become frustrating when you're looking for a body because then, of course, it's about, look, we know you've killed her. We just we just need her now. We need her back. And that's very frustrating and upsetting. Um, but you have to remain professional. And in fact, that was released to the to the media that interview. And the officers who dealt with that, you know, were, were, were immensely um, professional and calm. But, you know, and of course, you know, when you come out of that interview, you know, you're human, aren't you? You want to, you know, it's it, it it's it can be very annoying. But you have to get on with it and do your job. Thanks, Chris, and, and thanks for your candour there. And, and I'd like to just come back to, to Debbie um, in terms of what you said was the upsetting piece. Uh, my understanding is, Debbie, that the uh, the Metropolitan Police have basically said that uh, the, the killer of Jill Dando is highly unlikely ever to be found. What are the messages saying to you? I, are you in agreement with the police that it's unlikely, or do you think there's a... How can you... If you don't know who has murdered... If you don't know who has murdered somebody, you've no clue whatsoever at all. I'm not criticizing the police here, by the way. Um, but if you, I'm just talking about anybody, if you don't know who's murdered somebody, how can you say that that murderer will never be found or is highly unlikely to be, you know, found? Because there may be somebody out there that, you know, comes to light at some point that, you know, the DNA profile matches to something at the scene or, you, you know, you just can't say, can you? You can't say, can you? No, I, I agree with um, Debbie on that one. Um, that's not something that I would normally hear from the police. I mean, you've got to be realistic about these things, but you're absolutely right. You know, you, circumstances change, things in people's lives change, people's loyalties change, um, as well as forensic issues. Um, and, you know, you've always got to keep um, these cases open with an open mind I, th I think you're both right and and from certainly from my experience of, of interviewing um convicted criminals um dna apart they love to talk and you know uh, i wish i'd had the relationship i've had with some of the ex-offenders as a as a criminologist as a, I, I wish i could have had as a police officer because they, they do open up so i think i totally agree with both of you that there's always that opportunity that some other information, sometimes from a loose tongue, will come out in order to to remedy this. I think I think this is a defining moment. This is the first of the podcast where we've all agreed on one issue. So there we go. I know.
Do you know what I think might happen one day? Somebody on their deathbed. That's what I see. Somebody on their deathbed actually saying, I need to, I need to tell you what happened. Can I just ask, Chris, before we start to, to wrap this, uh, this fascinating discussion up, um, at the end of uh, this type of murder, um, and I know that a lot of murders have, have case reviews, um, for our listeners, um, who conducts the case review and, and what happens to those recommendations? Well, there's, there's different types of reviews. So um, one of the most common is where you haven't identified a suspect within 28 days. So that would be what we call a peer review. So that would be another senior investigating officer would come in and then review uh, what what work you'd done to make sure that you'd covered everything. So it's a bit of a check and a balance, I suppose. Um, so that's the first review. Then you'd have one at uh, three months, six months. Um, also, you, you might have a forensic review. So you'd have a, a crime scene manager, uh, you know, a senior forensic manager would come in and look at the case to see if there's any more forensic opportunities. I think... Um, in a case where you have a suspect and they're acquitted um, or their conviction is overturned on appeal, um, the, the process is slightly different because quite often the police will say, well, you know, we're not, we're not looking for anybody else in this case, which, you know, sends out a rather peculiar message. But those cases should then be reviewed again. So certainly in, in my organisation at the time, you know, if we had a, a case where there wasn't a conviction, then it would be reviewed again. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Debbie. Um, again, our investigation has delved deep into a mysterious, and in my personal opinion, one of the saddest um, deaths that we've uh, looked at. And in bringing things to a conclusion, again, I'd invite you, our listeners, to reflect upon the submissions and reach your own judgment. Um, but I think to reflect on Chris's statement there, I, I think we're, we're all very much sort of uh, landing in the same place on this one, even at this time. Again, evaluate your own opinion with a counter-narrative. And if it passes this assessment, folks, I encourage you to share your viewpoint with Debbie via social media. We will, Debbie and I, uh, declare our own verdict at the start of the next podcast. And uh, absolutely. And Debbie, let's over to you to, to bring things to a close. As always. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I just feel this has been another really interesting case, albeit, yes, like Ian said, so sad, it's tragic, absolutely such an awful, awful thing to happen. Um, thank you, Chris, you know, for all your thoughts. It's so fascinating listening, you know, to about the, the perspective of you know, a murder squad guy there. It's just mind-blowing, you know, completely. But it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. And you, Ian. Thank you. We have, of course, got an email address for the podcast, which is hello at unexplaineddeaths.com. Feel free to email in and... You know, if you can add any thoughts to the conversation, etc., we will be revisiting the cases at some point. So, you know, yeah, you may even get a shout out or, you know, if you've got something interesting, something that you know that happened in relation to any of these cases, then just drop us an email at that address. But so that's all for now, guys. And we really look forward to seeing you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>